Hi, this is Pastor Joel Webber with Right Response Ministries, and you're listening to another episode of Theology Applied. In this episode, I was privileged to have as a special guest, C.R. Wiley. He's known for several books. Uh, one of the books that he's written is called The Household and the War for the Cosmos. But he has an upcoming book, which is all about a peculiar character found in the Lord of the Rings called Tom Bombadil. And so our conversation today is all things Tom Bombadil. Uh, from a Christian perspective, seeing things that uh, I know that I didn't see, I was surprised by them, and I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings. Um, but I think it was very insightful, very interesting, looking at Tom Bombadil, and especially uh, what Christians can take from Tom, lessons and principles, and apply them in our lives and in our culture today. That said, um, if you would like to support this ministry, you can do so by giving a donation of any amount to rightresponseministries.com. Um, if you're not able to give financially, you can still support us by simply subscribing to our YouTube channel. You can click the bell to be notified by new content and especially sharing our content and encouraging your friends and family to follow along. Lastly, if you own a conservative business, especially if it's a Christian business, um, and you are looking to partner by sponsoring a show like ours, we would be happy to sit down and discuss the possibility of a partnership. Right now, we are actively looking for two sponsors to come on our show for the next month and, uh, and try it out. We'd love to partner with you in that way. All right, without further ado, here's our episode with C.R. Wiley on Tom Bombadil. Applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. All right, welcome to another episode of Theology Applied. As I've already mentioned, I am privileged to have C.R. Wiley as a guest. Pastor Chris, would you go ahead and take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, Joel, thanks for having me on the show. I, uh, I'm a pastor in the, in the PCA, and I'm serving a church in the Pacific Northwest, uh, just outside of Portland, Oregon, on the Washington side of the Columbia River. But uh, my, uh, my roots are back in New England, I, I wasn't born in New England, but I ministered there for about 35 years and uh, lived and ministered in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then on, down on Cape Cod and then on, in Connecticut. So uh, I have a lot of time in, in, in that part of the world. And I've got three kids. They're all grown, two of whom are uh, my, you know, my two boys are married and, and have, uh, well, my oldest, uh, his, his wife just had a baby and my second son, his wife is expecting, and she's due in March. And then my daughter is a senior at Grove City College. And uh, so anyway, she's, uh, she's a bright girl, and prospects look good for her for her future. And so I'm happy about that. So I'm married. I've been married to my wife for uh, over 35 years. And uh, anyway, it's a little bit about me. I taught philosophy for about a decade at the college level. And uh, I've been a, uh, a real estate investor. I've uh, been involved in commercial real estate investing since the early 90s and uh, still own properties back in New England. And And I'm a writer. I've written a few books. I've written, uh, I wrote a book called Man of the House, uh, another book called Household and the War for the Cosmos. And uh, I've got a book coming out next month uh, entitled In the House of Tom Bombadil. Mm. And that brings us to our topic at hand. I've read um, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. I thought it was great. And uh, I like how you just 
reminded the the reader, you know, bringing industry back into the home, you know, that, that it was detached from the home and bringing it back to it's the family's mission and that they're all involved in that. And so I thought that was really insightful. But uh, Tom Bombadil, uh, as soon as you told me that when we were, you know, doing our email correspondence and kind of planning the episode and the topic, um, you said, hey, well, I'm coming out with a book on Tom Bombadil. And I just, I, I'm kind of a sucker for, for that. As I told you before we started recording, I love the Lord of the Rings, which puts me in, you know, millions and millions of people who also love Lord of the Rings. And uh, right. man, Tom Bombadil is just one of the most interesting characters. So let's go ahead and just start off with this. Who is Tom Bombadil? And Maybe, I don't know, I, I don't, maybe it's better to ask the question, what is Tom Bombadil? And despite the fact that Peter Jackson and his famous movies left him out, why would you say that Tom Bombadil is significant enough of a character to write a whole book about? Well, I, uh, I think he's significant because Tolkien said he is. In, a, in some personal correspondence, he made the point of saying that um, there was a point to keeping Bombadil in the book. And he wasn't willing to kind of divulge what he was thinking, but he gives some hints in different places as you know, to what he was up to. And if you know anything about, um, you know, Tolkien's interests and uh, his academic sort of, uh, you know, expertise as an, as a philologist, there's all, there are all sorts of things that are going on, not only with Bombadil, but uh, with the Lord of Rings in general, that reflect uh, these really important interests that Tolkien had. And the interests that he had were shared by the other Inklings, including C.S. Lewis. And um, with those other guys, you know, like Charles Williams and Lewis and Owen Barfield, the, the concerns that they had were really prescient. They really saw, you know, sort of down the tunnel of time and saw the world that we live in today coming. And so a lot of the things that they wrote uh, were intended to address the crisis that they felt like was occurring right in the academy in their time. And they felt like they were kind of like way down the road in terms of the crisis. They thought they were near the end of the crisis in terms of mm. things falling apart. So they didn't think that they were at the beginning, but they, they felt like they still were in touch with things in the Western tradition that were sound, that were sane. And uh, Western civilization was losing touch with those things. And so they were making arguments for, in uh, obviously their prose, uh, you know, their nonfiction writing, but also in their, their fiction uh, to address, you know, addressing those things. Getting back to Tom, um, who is Tom? Well, there's been a lot of speculation about that, including Frodo asked the question, who is this guy? <laughs> he asked mm -hmm. Gallat, you know, Gallad or I mean, uh, Goldberry that, and, uh, you know, he asked her that very question. Then he asked Tom himself directly, you know, who are you, master? So Tolkien knew that we would wonder who this guy, you know, what this guy is and who right. he is. And, and Tolkien coy, you know, in a very coy way said, you know, sometimes authors are enigmatic on purpose. And I was enigmatic about Bombadil. He actually said that in a personal mm -hmm. letter. So he had, there's a point to Bombadil. He's purposefully enigmatic, but I have some thoughts on what Tolkien was doing with Bombadil, uh, and they have to do with his uh, kind of theological, philological interests. And uh, those interests actually are very relevant for us because we live in a world where Tom Bombadil is kind of uh, Tolkien's argument to postmodernism, 
to kind of the mm. craziness that's going on with CRT, all that stuff. So mm. anyway. Yeah, I, I, I could guess it where you're going to go, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it for when we get there. But uh, one question that I had was this. Is Tom Bombadil, is he, I mean, it seems as though he's a creature. You know, he, he says, you know, like almost like an Adam type figure, you know, um, not the last Adam being Christ, but, you know, the first Adam that he's the eldest, you know, eldest is my name, you know, and, and the sense of I was here before, you know, the mountains and here before, you know, this and here before that. Um, and so it's, it seems like he's first, um, but not eternal, you know, not, not that he always was, but that he was a creature created, but first, and, and it seems as though Gandalf kind of alludes to the fact that um, if they didn't destroy the ring, then Tom would probably, in the same way that he was first, he would be last, um, but that he would fall, that even his power, you know, which seems to be kind of bound to, to the location where, where he is, it doesn't seem like he could just go anywhere and, and contain that same measure of power. So he seems bound to a certain place, um, and, and yet he seems not timeless, um, but, but a longevity of being first and that he would be last to fall. So my question is, is that right? Is, is that a right sense? Is he a creature or, or is Tom Bombadil meant to be divine in some sense? I, I, I think you're right. I don't think he's Luvatar. In fact, Tolkien was very explicit that there is no incarnation in Lord of the Rings. So there's, there's no, uh, you know, I think if we take Tolkien at his word, you know, he, we can't say that he's the creator. Um, now, there's reason to think that maybe he could be, you know, when Goldberry says he is, that sounds very, you know, when, oh, yeah. when, 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 when Frodo asks the question, who is he? And she says he is. He is as, you, as he seems. Uh, that's, that, you know, kind of brings to mind, you know, obviously, you know, that episode in Exodus with Moses and the burning bush and I am, you know, so, but I, I think that that, uh, is kind of a false trail. I, I think you're right. I think he's more of an endemic figure, kind of an unfallen creature. And, yeah. um, one of the things that I think is, uh, if when you get into the legendarium, you know, there are all, there are all these loose ends that Tolkien is sort of tying up you know, in his sort of notes. And it's great that we have those notes published now by his son, Christopher, you know, we, one of those uh, books that contains some very fascinating information is uh, entitled Morgoth's Ring. It's kind of the, the history of Middle Earth, you know, it's like the 10th volume. So it's like, you know, like when I, when I think about Tolkien, this guy just like never threw anything away. <laughs> I've right. written books and I throw away the notes. I throw away all my scribbles. I throw away all the, the, the napkins I wrote on. I don't know if this guy threw away anything. And, you know, Christopher came in along and, and organized it and went through it and read it all and, and compiled, you know, books with the stuff. But one of the things that comes out in Morgoth's Ring is that when Melkor, the original Dark Lord, enters the world, if you remember from the Silmarillion, there's this, there's this sort of unexplained sort of uh, decline in Melkor's personal kind of presence and power that goes unexplained. But in Morgoth's ring, it's explained. So in, you know, the beginning, you know, Melkor is like totally awesome, the most powerful of the Valar. You know, everybody is awed by him. But in the, you know, in the Silmarillion, you find him kind of holed up in his, you know, sort of his, his uh, underground fortress afraid to come out. What happened? Well, according to, 
in Morgoth's ring, and what Tolkien tells us there is that his power was diffused throughout the physical world, causing it to uh, decay and die. And this is what uh, Tolkien refers to as Morgoth's ring. And there's this, um, you know, it's intended to sort of draw a parallel between Saran's ring, where he, you know, invests his power in this little circle of gold so that whoever picks it up is, has access to his power. Obviously, it corrupts the wearer, but you still have access to, to Saran's power. Likewise, uh, you know, Melkor was far more powerful than Saran. Saran was in awe of Melkor. And uh, Melkor's power suffuses the entirety of Arda, Middle Earth, and corrupts it, which is why we see the graying of the world, why the elves can remember a time when things were brighter, more beautiful, more enduring, and they live with this kind of uh, nostalgia, this loss, a sense of loss. Um, But, you know, when you go to Lothlorraine, you know, of course, there we see Galadriel has a ring that allows her to preserve something for the past to hold, stave off that corrupting, graying power. Uh, but what we're told by what we're told by Bombadil when we're in the house of Tom Bombadil, where they're sitting at the table, and you know, you know, during that rainy day, where Tom is just regaling the hobbits with all these marvelous stories about all kinds of you know things. He says, you know, I can remember not just when the first raindrop fell or when the first acorn was formed. I can remember a time before the coming of the Dark Lord. So he remembers it. In other words, he, 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 he uh, is alive. And there's something about him that I think uh, was not corrupted. He's, he's not been tinctured or uh, experience the kind of corrupting influence of Melkor. So there's something about him that's original. Hmm. That's my, that's my wow. thought. So I think you're right. I think he's a creature. I think he's an unfallen Adam figure. Okay. Like an Adam, if, if he never fell I- interesting a lot, enough. So different than Adam in the sense that Tom Bombadil would not be like a federal head of middle earth because right. middle earth was able to fall without him. Whereas if Adam never fell, you know, the, the earth would have never been, you know, Adam didn't just represent his wife and all his posterity, but cursed is the ground because of you. You know, he's this, he, he represents all of creation. And so all of creation is cursed by his willful rebellion. And so you're saying it's almost the reverse of that, similar to Adam, the first made, but um, an Adam who, who did not become corrupt himself, but also I was a steward maybe of, of, of the grounds and the earth, but, but not not representative of them to where, where they could be tarnished and corrupted apart from his will. Do you, uh, here's my question. Do you think, do you think that, that there's a sense in which maybe Tom Bombadil di- didn't personally engage in evil himself in such a way to, to be fallen? But, but do, you, do you think that Middle Earth in some sense was able to be corrupted by Melkor because of an abdication of, of Tom Bombadil? Like, like should he have stewarded more a, a larger like did he have more responsibility that he somehow failed to keep because there's this yeah. forgetfulness that gandalf talks like if we left the ring with tom he'd he'd forget yeah. he even had it you know yeah what do you that's think a, about that that's a, yeah that's a that's a worthwhile i think subject to reflect on. i have not spent any time thinking about that particular matter but i think that's worth thinking about um you know obviously he's you know there with uh goldberry but they're childless you know they're mm-hmm. Um, and they, uh, 
I think you know, my, my sense is that Lewis and Tolkien and a number of other uh, Orthodox uh, thinkers in the history of the West have been challenged by the, by the, the question, or, or at least the proposal, isn't the fall necessary for human beings to grow in wisdom? So that's the, that's the, the, the problem theologically, kind of anthropologically. And Lewis famously responded with his book, Paralandra, which is the, you know, rejoinder, no, <laughs> if the fall wasn't necessary. <laughs> In other words, you right. can't uh, bring, you know, it's, it's not as though evil was necessary to bring about good. Good is powerful enough to bring something good out of evil, but evil is not necessary for something good to be realized. So that's the, that's the challenge. So Paralandra is, you know, here we have with Paralandra, you know, Ransom, this figure from the earth, a philologist who was modeled on Tol Tolkien. <laughs> we know that uh, Lewis tells us that. And so he goes to Venus and there he meets an unfallen woman and an unfallen man. And there is a kind of, uh, you could say naivete there, but it's not as though they're, they lack wisdom. They, they have an ability, the, this, this, the, the, these characters have an ability to learn quick <laughs> and to exercise wisdom and to, and to still retain their righteous status. But I think that uh, Bombadil may be Tolkien's uh, way of addressing the problem. So when you look at, when you look at Tom, you know, he's wise uh, and uh, he's powerful and he's good, but in a very, I think, curious way, he's also innocent. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, he's, yeah, yeah he's not. Uh, and I think that's revealed, uh, you know, really profoundly with that moment where in that moment where he commands Frodo and he does command, he says, show me the ring, show me the precious right. ring. It's almost, it's kind of like tongue in cheek, you know, he's making fun of Gollum, you know, show me the precious ring. <laughs> right. And so, uh -huh. and then Frodo just to, immediately takes it out and hands it to him. I mean, even Frodo's surprised that he's doing it. Right. Because Frodo's been so reluctant to, to let anybody have it. And you're right, it makes me think real quick. It just makes me think the innocent factor. It makes me think of um, what, what is the verse that the apostle says, um, innocent in evil. Like they, they mm -hmm. were called to be wise as Christians, but there is a sense in which when it comes to those things which are wicked and evil, um, there should be a befuddledness about like that we're, that we're not well-versed in evil. We're, we're, naive yeah. almost like that. So we're not foolish. Um, we we're commanded to be wise. We're commanded to be discerning. We're commanded to be on guard, all those kinds of things. But there is something to be said for, um, a, a, um, a lack of experience with evil that produces a childlike innocence, but not a childish foolishness. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Joel. I think, you know, you've probably come across this. I've come across it many times in my life where there's this sort of contempt that sinful people have for innocent people because they, they, they think, Oh, you are just so uh, sort of inexperienced and naive. Right. Uh, you're an easy mark. Uh, you need to kind of wise up. And the only way you can possibly wise up is by doing a little bit of, uh, you know, wicked, uh, you know, and participating in some wickedness. And that's the only way you can become wise. That's the, that that's the temptation of the serpent. You know, this, mm -hmm. if you, if you do what's wrong, you will right. become wise. Tom, Tom is wise without that, <laughs> without yeah. that he's, and so he can take the ring, 
the ring has zero power over him. He puts mm-hmm. it on, he makes fun of it. He puts it up to his eye, kind of, I think, making fun of Saran in his eye. You know, he's kind of looking through oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> and then he puts it on his little finger. I think that's, that's important because, uh, you know, when uh, Tolkien describes the, you know, giving of the ring to Tom, we're told that, he, that it's placed in his big brown skinned hand. You know, and that he puts it on his little finger, this awesome and powerful ring that Gandalf is afraid to touch. Galadriel is afraid to touch. uh, And Tom just puts it on his ring and laughs. And and then he and he he, doesn't disappear. That's right. He doesn't disappear, but he makes the ring disappear. And remember, Frodo was shocked because he makes it's like it's like your uncle at the dinner table making a coin disappear. You know, he's just like laughing at you. And then, you know, he pulls it out of your ear. You know, it's he, you know, Tom kind of does that. He hands it back to Frodo with a smile and says, there you go. And then Frodo, if you remember, he's kind of put off by by this uh, flippant treatment of the ring. And so he decides he's going to see if it's the right ring. He puts it on his finger and. The hobbits can't see him anymore. And so he tries to sneak away. And then Tom just looks at him, says, come right. on back here. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, you know, sit back down, Frodo, take that ring off he your finger. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and then, and then Gallat, I mean, uh, Goldberry, I keep trying, I keep wanting to call her Galadriel, but Goldberry, and you know, she says that Tom is the master and that no one has ever caught Tom. And so what we see here is that Tom can't be caught even by the, by the ring of power. Hmm. That's pretty cool. <laughs> it makes me uh, man, I wish they, I wish they would do a series on Tom Bombadil. Oh, I'll ask you this real quick. So I think Amazon, I've heard that Amazon is going to be doing a Lord of the Rings type series. Yeah. Have you heard anything about this? I have. And I, yeah. I didn't. <laughs> what it, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. Cause I, it's like, I love, I, man, I'm suck, such a sucker for fantasy. So it's probably my favorite genre. So all the time, my, my friends, like some fantasy movie will come out. That's like B movie. We all know it's B. And for me, it's like, for me, it's a B movie in the genre of, of fantasy and dragons and magic and those kind. of, I'm like, I'll take what I can get. There's just not, not enough <laughs> movies to go around. And right. so I'm excited on one hand, but on the other, I'm just like, man, it's going to probably have gay agendas and it's going to, you know, like, what, what yeah. do you think? Well, I think you're right. I, I don't trust it. I, I, yeah. I, I remember the, when the first Peter Jackson film came out, like, was that 2001? I mean, it fell, you know, yeah, it fell for the ring. Yeah. Uh, I, so. I, I was, all, I was t- tremendously excited. Like everybody was to see it. I walked out halfway through it. No and way. I, really? Yeah, I, I was in the theater. I just got up and walked out and I said, that's it. And I didn't see any of the others. I just was completely put off. Uh, what what put you off? Took. Well, there were a couple of things. I mean, he uh, was clear that kind of his uh, angle of vision, uh, even then was to somehow make Tolkien palatable to certain, I guess, political and cultural trends. So, you know, Arwen goes from being, you know, uh, a really important figure to this to this gal who can sneak up on Aragorn in the woods and he's not, you know, able to know she's, you know, sneaking up on. This is this is this is a guy that even Legolas, you know, is impressed by in terms of his woodcraft. (laughs) You know, he's one of the great he's one of the great figures in the world. I mean, he's you know, he's the king of men. He's the he's what. Really, 
you know, the, the original three houses uh, of men, uh, you know, in the Silmarillion, he's a personification of those first men hmm. who, you know, even the elves were impressed by. But, I mean, he's, he's kind of, uh, you know, outwitted by this gal. And I, that put me off a little bit. But then that when they were in the mines of Moria and they had this scene with the uh, orcs kind of climbing up a column as if they were like insects or something. I just said, I, remember, yeah. I was like, I just, I just kind of just said, that's it. I'm out. <laughs> and I left. <laughs> now I'm not, I'm not the sort of person that goes around, you know, putting down the films or trying to talk other people out of liking them or anything. But I, I just, to me, I just didn't want to, to have, because the Lord of the Rings had such an important influence on me or a significant influence on me. I didn't want to be tinctured, if you know what I mean, or, yeah, or uh-huh, corrupted yeah. or polluted. And so I just said, I'm going to, I'm just going to enjoy the books. And yeah, I walked out. I get that. I get that. I, I for me, I was so young at the time that I, I didn't have enough knowledge from the books. I, I, I'm pretty sure I had read the Hobbit because I went to grade school like everyone else, you know? So <laughs> I read the Hobbit cause I'm pretty sure it was assigned and I loved it. I mean, it was yeah, wonderful. Yeah. And, um, but I hadn't read the Lord of the Rings and, um, and, you know, so I was familiar with like goblins in the Hobbit and, you know, there, there are a little bit of orcs, but, um, but I, I just wasn't that familiar. So when I went and watched the movies, not having read the books at the time, you know, everything that I was watching, I was like, I didn't notice sure, sure. any contradiction, you know, so sure. Yeah. But that makes sense. Um, all right. So what, let, let's, let's maybe, um, shift gears a little bit now and just, uh, so what, what is the relevance for Christians? What, what are, what's something that Christians, I, I mean, I feel like we've already addressed some of it, but, um, what are some of the things that, that Tom Bombadil has to say for Christians and Tolkien, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you said, you know, he was putting his finger almost prophetically on some of the things, you know, that, that he was seeing down the corridor of time um, and some of the cultural problems that we're experiencing. What what are some of those things and what can we learn? Yeah, I think one of those things is a old problem, and that's our, the way we understand dominion. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you think about uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Lord of the Rings is a book about uh, domination, which we see with Saran, and we see, you know, an aspiring dominator in Saruman. He wants to dominate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we have those figures, and then we have on the other side, you know, some some other very noble characters. Obviously, Gandalf and Aragorn and Galadriel, and they use power in a way that uh, is, I mean, praiseworthy. But I think, in terms of a pure type, uh, Bombadil presents us with a pure type of what dominion looks like without domination. Mm. So, you know, what you have there, I mean, he may be the most powerful creature in Middle Earth. I mean, when you think about it, you know, first we have the episode with Old Man Willow, and then we have the episode with the Barrow White. The episode Mm. with the Barrow White is, now what's one fun thing to think about, first episode or first uh, point or first deliverance is at a tree. Think about that. Second deliverance is at a tomb. Think about hmm. that. <laughs> so the we tree in these... the sepulcher makes me, you know, Pilgrim's <laughs> Progress. Yeah. 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 So we see in, in the second uh, deliverance, uh, kind of a resurrection scene. So there they are in the tomb and, uh, you know, Bombadil comes to the rescue 
uh, we're told that he, that the, the stones are rolled away. Literally, you know, you hear stones rolling away. And then Tom's head appears with the sun rising in the east behind him. Now, all of that stuff is just so profoundly, you know, last days, you know, kind of stuff. And then what does he do? He, he casts the barrel white into the outer darkness. So with just a word, so he says, you know, go. And then in the course, you know, in the, in the, in the statement or in, in the condemnation or the, you know, the, the judgment that he renders, he talks about until the world is mended. So there we have an allusion to an, es- mm-hmm. an eschaton. So there are, there are all these things going on in that, in that scene that remind us of, you know, resurrection morning and the last, you know, the last resurrection, the final resurrection, all, all that stuff's going mm-hmm. on. So, you know, am I saying that he is a Christ figure? Well, he's a type. You know, I'm not saying that he's like Aslan or something, but, right. but I, he, you know, he's, he's like a type, like we see in the old Testament. And, and uh, you know, with all these things, he's demonstrating what, what true dominion looks like. He mm-hmm. frees the hobbits twice. Uh, he has communion with the hobbits. One of the things that comes through uh, with regard to, so I think that if you take and you put Saruman and Bombadil alongside each other, there's almost a perfect kind of uh, kind of inversion of types. Mm. Um, uh, Saruman wants uh, power, and he's willing to break things to get it. There's that scene where um, you know Gandalf is in Orthanc, right? He's been captured by by Saruman, and Saruman you know says, "I am the Saruman, the Ringmaker, Saruman the Wise, Saruman of many colors," right? And uh, then uh, Gandalf says, I like white better. And then, you know, Saruman says, well, white's good for a start. You can dye the white cloth. You can overwrite the, the white page. You can break the white light. And then Gandalf says, well, if you break something to know it, you have departed from the path of wisdom, something to that effect. Yeah. So you've got two contrasting visions of wisdom. One wisdom uh, personified by Saruman which is, I think, I think that that particular episode with the with the robe and the white light and all that kind of that's a very subtle allusion to uh, Newton's, you know, experiments with optics, and the whole uh, sort of like, uh, well, sort of the aspiration to, uh, you know, to uh, acquire knowledge for the sake of power. So you know, you break things so that you can isolate power. So you know, Bacon you know, Francis Bacon, and uh, with the idea that knowledge is power. So you've got that quest for power, power in the raw, raw power that's been distilled from the natural ends toward which it's been directed by the creator. And then you have another kind of wisdom personified by Gandalf, which is the wisdom that seeks, and I think even more profoundly personified by Bombadil, the wisdom that seeks to understand the ends toward uh, for which various creatures have been made mm-hmm. and is you know you know interested in communing with those so right. saruman uh there's this this is uh, this sort of snippet of dialogue between uh you know mary and pippin and treebeard and treebeard is describing his interactions with saruman and he says there came a point in time where saruman was a was like a wall with windows that were shuttered from the inside. He was only interested in knowledge that he could use 
to get what he wanted, but he was not interested in communing with anyone. He never told, mm. Treebeard says this, I told him many things he wouldn't know if, he, if I hadn't told him, but he never told me a single thing. He mm. wanted, he was, he was hoarding knowledge because he wanted knowledge for the sake of power. Whereas Tom, you know, he sits down at the table, tells the, you know, the hobbits all kinds of stuff. <laughs> You know, right. about, you know, the hearts of trees and the ways of badgers and just all these different things, you know, good things and bad things. So he knows about the bad things, but he's he knows them as an observer, not as a participant. And right. um, so, you know, I, I contrast those two visions of wisdom. Uh, and I think Tom is uh, very much in the spirit of the, you know, the, the wisdom that Gandalf is talking about when he talks about departing from the way of wisdom, if we break something. And, you know, you know, that Saruman was trying to break Gandalf in Orthanc. Right. He was going to torture him. And if he had ever gotten a hold of Merry and Pippin, you know that he would have tortured them to get what right. he wanted to know. So um, breaking, breaking things down. Were you saying with the, like the it sounded like you were saying for a moment, like the illustration of light. Like refraction, like like almost like a prism when when white light goes through and it refracts into all the different colors, and that Sar Saruman was making a reference to the white, but but ref, like broken down um, into many, the, you know, the one of many colors. Kind of is right. is that what you were saying? It makes yeah, me so it makes me think of like today, just one tangible example. You're you're putting your finger on the larger principle, the general principle, which is. Uh, very helpful but just one you know case example what i think of you know there, there's one group of people in our culture today that, that look at babies in the womb and think that they can be physically literally broken down like yeah. parts like yes, a computer definitely. and right. used for power to to fix this to do that you know like right now i'm sure you're aware you know you know, I, I thank God and his, his mercy, you know, whatever, whatever it takes. But, you know, Fauci, you know, finally under fire because, you know, you can, you can take the, the, the scalps of babies from their mother's womb and, um, and infuse them on the top of rats. And Americans don't care. Uh, but you better not mess with puppies, right? So that's, so Fauci is, so right. Fauci is under fire right now because he went, he went too far. He messed with puppies. Um, but my, but my point is to say that like with, with the fetal cell line and all these different things, and you know, a lot of us are becoming aware of things that, that have gone on for a long time, but, but the public didn't know about, you know, the fetal cell line and this and that. And, and, um, you know, I just think of babies as just one. You're you're looking at the principle, and you're absolutely right. And I'm just think, I'm trying to make a practical example, and I think of that principle of of um, the you know because God has given us dominion over 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 right. everything. You know, and um, but there's a way of using what God has given. He's given us the plants, you know, and then and then we have kind of this this you know covenant 2.0, common grace covenant, in the way that I see it in my covenant theology with with Noah, that um, it's it's really just a reestablishing of the cultural mandate. Uh, but now, as the orcs would say, meat is on the menu, you know, and uh, and God gives the animals you know to mankind and and introduces you know and not just the fruit, um, and so all these things are given to us for our enjoyment. Um, but there's a way of seeing. Um, the resources that God has made, the creatures of this world, right? He, the, the Psalms say he has compassion on all he has made. 
Um, there's a sense of like God loves butterflies. He loves rabbits. He loves, you know, uh, not just people. Um, certainly he loves man in a, in a particular way as his image bears, but God has compassion on all he has made, all these creatures, and he's given us dominion over them. And there is a sense in which we exercise that dominion in, in some cases with animals to eat. And we, we kill them, we take their life, uh, we, we eat them. But even I think of, you know, the Old Testament and, you know, you, you shall not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Why? Because... The, the metaphor, the mother's milk is meant to only be a source of nourishment and life, not a source of destruction. And there's, so there's a proper order and a proper purpose and an end to all that God has made. And sometimes that means killing something and eating it, but to break things apart, um, especially human beings created in the image of God and, and the most precious and vulnerable among us in their mother's womb, to break them apart and infuse them with rats and to do that. Like, and, and I just, I think of that as kind of like a, like Saruman would, would be on team Fauci. I just thought it. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, you remember, remember uh, there's in the course of uh, the story in the two towers in particular, there's this, uh, this uh, kind of hint that orcs uh, have been uh, crossbred with humans. And that's, that's why, right. Saruman's orcs are not afraid of the, of being, you know, fighting in the daylight. Uh, whereas that's right. Yeah, you know, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. So there are all these different things, and 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 Treebear says that would be black evil if if that's mm. what he's done. But I think you're right. I think I think when we think about uh, Bombadil, he wants to commune with the hobbits. He wants to spend time with them. He wants to free them. Um, mm-hmm. So that he can enjoy company with them. There's this mo- there's this moment with Treebeard where, you know, Merry and Pippin are there, and and one of the hobbits asks, "Do you mind if we ask you what you intend to do with us?" And Treebeard says, "If you if you buy that, you mean what I intend to do do to you? Nothing, <laughs> but right. we can do some we can do some things together. <laughs> right. you know, that right. that kind of thing. And all of the powerful characters, Elrod, you know, Gandalf, Aragorn." Uh, Galadriel, they all honor the choices of the hobbits, these little creatures. Um, You know, Pippin wants to go on the journey with everybody, you know, back at Rivendell. And and Elrod just kind of throws up his hands and says, all right, all right. (laughs) You you know, I I, I don't think you should go. I think you should go back to the Shire. But uh, anyway, whatever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, that doesn't mean that good characters can't, you know, be strong and, and sort of act. I mean, you think about what Bombadil does in both of those episodes where he saves the hobbits, he puts the tree in its place, right. you know, old man Willow, and he, and he puts, he puts the barrel white in its place. He's, mm-hmm. he's able to act decisively and powerfully for the good of the hobbits because these right. other creatures were trying to use them for wicked ends. Right. So I think that that that's, that's huge. And that, and I also think, it, you know, uh, one of the things that, um, you know, we're dealing with in our society today is the problem of language. Um, you know, postmodern literary theory has completely, uh, you know, divorced language from the things that it refers to. And so not everything is interpretation all the way down. It's just, you know, uh, expression of your own personal preferences or will to power. That's, that's all language is. It's, it's like a tool to get what you want from other, other people and from the world. And that's why everybody's on the, on the defense. You know, everybody's defensive because they're where so we get microaggressions and all this kind of stuff. Every, you know, it's not as though our, our language binds us together. It's actually the thing that we use to exploit each other. That's, that's all postmodern literary theory can, can say about language. 
Whereas, you know, in Lord of the Rings, you know, you've got a whole different approach to sort of thinking about language. With Tre Treebeard, if you remember, he says that, you know, it takes a really long time to say anything in Entish because every word is the history of that thing. You know, so it's actually mm -hmm. describing the thing that's its own history. But with, with Tom, this is where the singing comes in. So uh, there's a very, I think, uh, you know, large role that singing plays in, you know, Middle Earth. You know, there are all these songs throughout, you know, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and Silmarillion. But the, the first song is what? It's the song of creation in the Silmarillion. So cre the creation itself is a kind of living song. It's the kind of the expression of the song of the, the Valar. Uh, and, you know, when we, when we see Tom with his, his nonsense songs, it's always kind of this, he's got this lyrical quality, even when he's just talking, you can kind of see the cadence mm -hmm. or feel the cadence in his speech. Right. Uh, and he delivers the hobbits with songs. And I think that what that's, you know, uh, you know, intended to say to us is that, uh, Tom knows the language of creation and that he can actually call back and call things back to their purposes and to their natures. Mm. So that means that he exercises dominion in a pretty significant way as a regent, as a steward of, you know, the creation that has, has been brought into being that he's just simply, uh, you know, sort of caring for and making sure uh, is, you know, being what it was intended to be. That makes a lot of sense. It seems as though the only tragedy with Tom, and maybe this isn't his fault. I'm, I'm going to pose it as a question here in just a moment, because maybe it's part of his, you know, the, the way that he's composited and his, you know, his particular nature and, and, and just biologically being incapable of it. I don't know. And I, I'm assuming that you'll know the answer, but assuming that he can procreate, it seems like the only failure of Tom, it seems like he's exercising perfect dominion and he himself unfallen, it's just too small. It seems like the only failure is that, that he isn't fruitful and multiplying. He, he's, he's lending towards the fruitfulness of, of anything and everything and anyone else, you know, but, but that him and uh, Goldberry are, are childless. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah, I, I think that every kind of uh, image, you know, falls short of what we'd like it to, 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 to be. And I think that he serves a particular purpose in the story. Uh, you know, you know, even at the Council of Elrod, there was this question, maybe we should just give him the ring <laughs> and he could take right. care of it. You know, I thought, well, maybe they could just give him the ring and say, hey, would you mind just taking it to Mordor and throwing it in, in Mount Doom for us? Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> you know, yeah. if, if anyone could do it, you could. <laughs> and couldn't he call one of the eagles, you know, or 20 right. of them? And it's like, let's get this done. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. right. But uh, that's not what happens. And in our right. world, that's not what happens, too, because it makes a better story for the hobbits to take the job. And it, in, in a way, it, it makes for a better story for you and me to do things that we've been you know, given to do. But um, I also think, though, that Tom is a kind of picture of the end of the world because, um, yes, he, 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 he's kind of an endemic figure, uh, but he's also kind of a figure that shows you what rest looks like. So... You know, when the when the, the daring do is done and the and the wickedness has been finally defeated and death is no more, what do we do? You know, 
Um, are we just like a bunch of high school jocks that just sit around and talk about the good old days when we, you know, scored the touchdown or <laughs> this kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Or do we really enjoy uh, the, the, the blessedness of, uh, you know, the good things that we can enjoy in God? And that's kind of what we see with Tom. I mean, he's just always in a good mood. <laughs> you know, he's in, in, in Goldberry and him are just their harm. They've got this beautiful harmony. And uh, there are a couple of things that helped me to kind of uh, associate Tom with the end. One was what I said earlier about the Barrow White. But the other is the dream that Frodo has in Tom's house. So if you remember, Tom, you know, Frodo has this dream. And in the dream, he has, there's this like curtain of rain that parts and he sees a sunrise and he sees a, a land in the distance across the, across some water. And then at the very end of the Lord of the Rings, when Frodo is at the gray havens and is now on the ship and is sailing into the West, we're told for the last time, something about Bombadil. When Frodo sees the, the curtain of rain and it parts and he sees the undying lands he remembers that he dreamed about it in Bombadil's house. That's mm. the dream actually foresaw or foretold what he was going to experience when he went into the uttermost West. So when we think about eternal rest, you know, the eternal Sabbath, I think Bombadil in a way is a kind of picture of that Sabbath rest. Mm. Yeah, it's good. It makes me think of a uh, pilgrim's progress that it's like, so Tom Bombadil, it's like a, almost like a stopping place on the way, you know, it's, it's not there. Um, but it's a place from which you can get a glimpse of, yeah, of right. the ultimate end. It makes me think of the delectable Hills, the shepherds, yeah, you know, right. it's like from, from here, you know, the, the pilgrim weary pilgrims able to be nourished and the shepherds, you know, nourish and teach and, you know, and, um, you know, relinquish, um, their wisdom upon the weary pilgrims. They rest their safety, their security, and uh, they're not there yet. They're going to have to ultimately leave Tom Bombadil's house. They're going to have to leave the delectable mountains and the shepherds. But from that place, you know, there's a strategic vantage point where you can see um, the eternal Sabbath rest. And it makes me just think of, you know, the church, the Lord's, the Lord's day. Right. You know, Spurgeon right. said, it's right. the sweetest place I know, the sweetest place on earth, despite all of its faults, you know, or Calvin, you know, wherever the word is rightly preached and the sacrament rightly ministered, there a church of God exists. Uh, despite its many faults. And, and when we gather together on the Lord's day, Christ is uniquely present with us um, in, in the sacrament, pre- present with the Lord's Supper, and present also in authority for binding and loosing and the keys mm-hmm. of the kingdom and all these things. And, and the Lord even in, is pleased to condescend and inhabit the, the very praises of his people, which I think has a corporate nature. And so I, I think of Tom Bombadil's house kind of likened to the delectable mountains with Pilgrim's Progress. And, and for our purposes... Here in this life, for the Christian, I think of uh, the Sabbath day, the, the Lord's day, the first day of the week, you know, and, and, and even that makes me think, you know, that Tom Bombadil being kind of further towards the beginning of their journey. There oh, was, yeah, they, yeah. they weren't even halfway there. It's right. almost, it almost has that kind of first day of the week kind of symbol, you know, that uh, it's, not, it's not the midway point, which would seem to make logical sense, but rather, as the Puritan said, it's the it's the first day of the week because it's, it's the marketplace for the soul. It's the place where we gather all these goods, you know. Right. And, um, and I know I there's fr- a lot of symbolism with that. Rivendell would be another maybe example. Oh, yeah, but. yeah. Yeah, I have a friend Go named uh, Rachel Fulton Brown, and she teaches at the uh, uh, University of Chicago. 
And uh, we were talking about this very thing. And she does a lot of, you know, thinking and writing about Tolkien. She's a medievalist. So uh, her, her thought is very much along the lines of what you just, uh, you know, expressed or laid out. And uh, her thought was that this, this was a kind of catechesis, you know, at the very beginning, almost kind of a baptism with particularly with that rain day, yeah. you know, uh, kind of preparing to set out uh, as right. they do kind of on this pilgrim trek. Yeah, definitely. That's cool. That's really cool. All right. Well, any, any final words? Well, I, I, I don't really. I mean, um, apart from the, from the fact that the book will be out uh, in November, and if folks would like to read it, uh, that'd be great. Where, where can people buy it? Well, it'll be, you know, available in all the online stores, you know, that people buy things at. But if they want to go directly to the publisher, it's Canon Press. Okay. You can say it, Chris. It, Amazon. I know, I know it hurts. It's available on Amazon, but it, it, it is. It, yeah. It's you can actually, pre, you can actually pre-order on Amazon right now. It's, it's, a, okay, it's cool. actually up. They don't have the cover of image there, but you can pre-order it. Okay. So available on Amazon, all the other places and, um, but Canon press would be the source. And so any of our listeners who aren't familiar, Canon press is, uh, in Moscow, Idaho, Doug Wilson is uh, the publishing company that he started. Lots of great material. Um, will it also be available on the Canon app for anybody who gets the Canon app? I think so. I think so. Uh, I'm going to be actually uh, talking to some folks there being interviewed about this very thing uh, in a couple of days. And I'll be cool. up there in Moscow to do some video stuff related to the book. But uh, so I, I'm pretty sure there'll be a bunch of stuff there on and I don't know uh, what the plan is with regard to an audio book or something, but I suppose that there will be one. And uh, either I'll be the reader or somebody else uh, that they use regularly will do it. Great. Okay. Well, thank you, Pastor Chris. I appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you very much. It's been great to be with you, Joel. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store. To access this offer, visit rightresponseministries.com offer. We highly recommend Pastor Joel's book, Am I Truly Saved? If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com offer. And thank you for your generous support.